0: I am so so grateful for my conversation with Trey Williams. He is the author of The Brain Boss coming out really soon. And you know, he took me to a soulful place. You know, when I was younger, and I'll say it, my parents were right. They thought I was going to become a writer, an artist, a creator, because I was able to write stories, tell stories, and you couldn't keep me quiet. And then life happened and somewhere along the way, I switched to being a STEM professional. But I always felt different. I always followed what was expected of me, or I did what I thought I was supposed to be doing climbing the corporate ladder, and getting financial peace of mind and supporting and being a partner with my husband and raising a family. But (laughs) my conversation with Trey goes to a place of, you know, that may sound good for the short term, but we're killing creativity and entrepreneurship in the business world. And so I would love for you to really listen deeply to this conversation we're about to have and the full episode because, you know, the future of our country, of the world is really rooted in entrepreneurship. Let's listen.
1: Most of us wake up every day and we go about a very similar routine. We brush our teeth at the same place. We take the same commute to work. We eat at one of six or seven different places at lunch with usually the same eight or 10 people from work. And then we take the same commute home, et cetera, et cetera. This just becomes groundhog day, right? One of my favorite movies. It's just the same thing day after day. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not going to imply that or vilify anyone who loves the predictability of their life because our brains yearn for predictability. In fact, The entire reason why there's this disparity between quality of life and job satisfaction is because Mother Nature wired us with this yin and yang in our brains, where she gave us the instincts to envision a better future and simultaneously gave us the instincts to yearn for predictability and stability.
0: Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the drop-in CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, Join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of Illumination Partners, and I am so grateful that you've joined us this week for another episode of the Drop-In CEO Podcast, where I get to speak to amazing leaders and share their insights with you. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review so we can continue to bring you great programming. And now I'm honored to share the mic with Trey Williams. My guest, Trey, is a nationally recognized expert in entrepreneurship and business strategy. The significant decline of entrepreneurship in America inspired his upcoming book and his mission to rescue one million entrepreneurs from traditional employment. Trey's new book, Boss Brain, reveals a scientifically proven system that unlocks readers' true potential and unleashes their entrepreneurial instincts so they can leave traditional employment forever. That's the real American dream. Welcome to the show, Trey.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: You know, I got so excited when we were introduced, when you talked about the entrepreneurial mindset, what holds us back, and those that do succeed, I couldn't help but think about the people that are listening to the show. There are a group of people that are emerging leaders that should understand the possibilities in front of them. And then there's also a demographic of people who listen to the show who have done really, really well for themselves, but are at a point in their lives where they feel stuck. There's something about entrepreneurship and the courage that goes with it that I think will be a fantastic message. So if you could just share a little bit about yourself personally, your business journey, and the work that you're doing now to impact a million people.
1: Well, if they feel stuck, I would say that they're not alone. There was a study in 2018 that is cited in the book where uh, we studied 2 million people in the United States, and it was found that of them, 70% of those individuals indicated that they would prefer to be self-employed uh, to put that into perspective 70 percent of the american workforce is a hundred million people and the irony of this is that america really is and and always claims to be the most entrepreneurial country in the world and and the truth is we we do still have a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit we rank third in the world on the percentage of people who would prefer to be self-employed but m- my work in this book and, and this mission really began a few years ago when I realized that there was a tenfold difference between those who are thinking it and those who are doing it. 70% of America wants to be self-employed. About 7% actually is. And that number has been on the decline since the mid-1940s. It's been really a, uh, an eye-opening and, and somewhat sort of an oxymoron experience for me to think of ourselves as being so entrepreneurial, yet each year fewer and fewer entrepreneurs actually create new businesses. In fact, in 2006, more businesses closed than opened for the first time in American history.
0: So I'm curious about that. Those are um, really impressive and scary statistics because you hear about the American dream. There's so many people flocking to this country for opportunity. And then we who are here may not take advantage of it. So, what is the gap? What prevents
1: us? Yeah. So, I'm I'm so glad to hear you mention the American Dream. So, a guy named James Truslow Adams wrote a book called Epic of America in 1931, and in it was where he really described and defined the American Dream—that ability to achieve all that is within your inherent abilities, you know, within within your lifetime and. It's, it's not unexpected to see that terminology, the American dream, really reshapen and morphed and, and claimed by those who would have you do the opposite of that. You see commercials on television all of the time. You talk about the American dream being home ownership. Everyone says, oh, to own your own home is the American dream. And it absolutely is not. That is not. People don't come to America to own their own home. You can own a home anywhere in the world. People come to America because it's the land of opportunity, and they want to seize those opportunities, just like James Treslow Adams said, to achieve all that is within their power. So there's been this interesting precipitous decline in entrepreneurship simultaneously while the media and everyone decries the American dream, being shackling yourself to this 30-year mortgage, and the result of that is you end up choosing the safest option. You have this mortgage, you have these kids, you have this debt which is which is really part of what everyone tells you you need to subscribe to. And as a result, you lose your inherent creativity, you lose your ability to innovate, you become very dutiful, and you get, to use your term, dead stuck, right? You find yourself stuck.
0: So, I mean, we can go in so many directions here, and maybe I'm jumping to the end, but, you know, I, <laughs> okay. first of all, <laughs> you know, I was – Not stuck because I think what I was is later in my career, I started doing some very entrepreneurial things like, ooh, let's try this or, ooh, this would be really interesting. And then it didn't conform to the narrative of within my corporate structure for which I am grateful to have had the means to be able to have what you say is the American dream, a wonderful family, being part of a great community and the opportunity. But then I got to a point of feeling stuck. There's got to be something different. I don't feel fulfilled. And then I see others in the workplace that look they can do so much more and they don't. So what are some thoughts or things that you would suggest to people that maybe they can start moving slightly in the direction to prepare them for entrepreneurship?
1: Sure. So the this is entirely what the book Ball Spring is about, in fact, is is giving you the tools you need to deconstruct this mindset and this lifestyle that you've built that is centered around employment. And it helps people stop thinking and living like an employee and start thinking and living like an entrepreneur. And that's the purpose of this book. So the the first thing that I would say to them is to recognize that it took you a lifetime to reach the point where you are, and you're not going to wake up tomorrow And suddenly flip a switch and stop being an an employee and start thinking like an employee, start living like an employee. It was a process to arrive, a journey to arrive where you are. So it's going to be a journey to depart and and to find a new destination. And once you've embraced this, this, there's this process of deconstructing that life and that mentality. Then you can go about the small tedium of making those incremental changes over time.
0: You know, there are certain things, and I think about this, this is near and dear to my heart. (laughs) There are certain things that people can do is one is just some mindset work. I have this friend of mine, and they're near and dear to my heart, where they have the mindset of like, I can't switch the area of my career. I've always done this. I can't do that. Well, why not? And I keep seeing this time and time again, just because you don't have a specific experience. But if you have a capability, a potential, you understand your ideal client, you can start making those changes. And as soon as somebody says, I can versus I can't, the mindset changes, opportunities open, opportunities start showing up for you that you weren't looking for, and you started moving in the direction of entrepreneurship or taking control of what you really want to do.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the mentality itself will cause you to realize the opportunities that uh, maybe you've ignored, right? Or, or to realize the assets and the resources that you have available to you that you haven't maximized because you've been too busy maintaining your life and not living your life. And most of us wake up every day and we go about a very similar routine. We brush our teeth at the same place. We take the same commute to work. We eat at one of six or seven different places at lunch with usually the same eight or 10 people from work. And then we take the same commute home, et cetera, et cetera. This just becomes Groundhog Day, right? One of my favorite movies. It's just the same thing day after day. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm not going to imply or vilify anyone who loves the predictability of their life, because our brains yearn for predictability. In fact, the entire reason why there's this disparity between quality of life and job satisfaction is because Mother Nature wired us with this yin and yang in our brains, where she gave us the instincts to envision a better future and simultaneously gave us the instincts to yearn for predictability and stability. Now, if if those two things are opposing forces, and, and that's an important part of our rise of humanity. So this is the story I like to tell. Imagine it's 2000 years ago, and you're living in an oceanfront village in Spain. And one of the members of your village begins building a raft. And he looks west and says, I think there's something out there that is fabulous. And in that place, I could build a life and flourish and leave a legacy. Mother Nature wired him to feel this way, to have this optimistic vision of the future. But simultaneously, there would be people standing on the beach saying, dude, what are you doing, right? We live in this oceanfront village. We're right here in Spain. We've got great weather. There's wonderful food. Why would you give up this stability and this predictability? And that is because we are all wired with this duality. It's just that as our quality of life increased, one of those instincts began dominating the other. And now, particularly in America, where the base of Maslow's hierarchy is almost certain in every way that scales have been tipped and optimism has been completely smothered by our desire for predictability.
0: Amazing story. And and I want to just continue with this because during our discovery call, you talked about predictable adequacy. Is that what yeah. we're talking
1: about? Yeah, yeah. I use that term in the book, predictable adequacy. I first talk about when uh, I tell a story in the book about uh, the the city of Jericho. And the city of Jericho is a, is a famous city. Everyone knows the walls of Jericho in the story, but it was ideally positioned— had, fantastic weather. It was very like the story that I just told you on the shores of Spain. It's this place where you have this amazing amount of resources and fresh water and and we're ideally located between the ocean and the mountains, et cetera, et cetera. And Jericho ended up falling to Rome around 100 AD. And the irony behind that is Jericho was founded 5,000 years before Rome. So let me restate that. A city that was founded five thousand years before Rome was was wasn't even conquered by Rome. They just stepped on Jericho as a way station on their way to to conquer King Herod, right? So there was it wasn't even their intended prize. And how does that happen? It's it happens by spending thousands of years. Sitting on predictable adequacy and not innovating, not making changes, not having an incremental generational advancement from one generation to the next. And that's what's happening now. We, we live in an America now where the quality of life and the life expectancy and the, the health metrics of the current generation are, for the first time in history, less than their parents'.
0: You know, for some reason, if nothing else, there's not, to your point about the hierarchy, there's not as much of a burning platform to say we have to do something now or else we're a little too comfortable.
1: Well, comfort is the enemy of progress. And, and if you're yes. incredibly comfortable, then you're probably and likely not progressing in any way, shape, or form. So there isn't a platform that's screaming this from the hilltops. And it's one of the reasons why I have chosen to is I'm a, I'm a patriotic American. I was born and raised here. I want to see America flourish in every way, and I want to see every citizen flourish in every way. But if you think there's civil unrest now when, 99 per, or when 1% of the people hold 99% of the wealth— Imagine what the imagine well, imagine if there's going to be any harmony in society when 99% of us work for the other 1%, which is what's going to happen in 2045 if we don't make changes.
0: Chilling statistics, and uh, one can say you're probably a futurist, but you have to be the person ringing the bell now (laughs) to get people's attention. So, I, I there's a couple directions I want to go into, but you know, you want to inspire a million people potential entrepreneurs, but where? who's your ideal audience? Where do you spend time trying to make the most impact right now with your message in your book?
1: So I do this two ways. I, I speak to individuals and, and the book is for every aspiring entrepreneur. And if you're listening to this right now, uh, it's important for you to know that the, the word entrepreneur comes from an old Sanskrit word that meant inner calling. And, and, and I love that definition because you likely feel in your heart, just like 70% of Americans, that you were meant to be your own boss. You have this inner calling, and that definition still applies today. So the book itself speaks to the individual and, and helps them make that transition. I do the most amount of my work a- engaging directly at municipal levels and economic development levels and policymakers who could tear down the barriers for those individuals. I can speak to individuals, via a podcasts or via articles or via books, but i'm I'm never going to be able to interact directly with a million people individually, and I know that. So I have to take the next best thing, which is go to those stakeholders and gatekeepers that are in those communities where these aspiring entrepreneurs live and and tell them and educate them in ways that they can tear down these barriers and really support those aspiring entrepreneurs. Instead of focusing on large business and large employment and, and which is what a vast majority of chambers and municipalities and economic development boards do. They look, can I get this massive distribution center that will hire 2000 people? And that's wonderful. Of course you should be building jobs. But what happens when that center decides to move away? What happens when those two or 3,000 people suddenly find themselves jobless? And this goes back to the yin and yang Deb. we have to simultaneously be working to nourish entrepreneurship while we're developing predictability and stability. And we're not doing that right now. We're not nourishing entrepreneurs. We're doing the opposite of that. Everything on television tells you never to open your own business. Every show is kitchen nightmares, bar rescue. And I hate this narrative because America is built on the back of small business owners. 65% of economic output in America is by companies with less than 100 employees. So small businesses own America and don't let anybody tell you different. So it's important for us to, to just show that that narrative is false and that it is not as dangerous as the television might make it out to be. In fact, It is your inner calling, to use the ancient Sanskrit definition.
0: And you know, you just hit a point with me where I have a sweet spot. So again, I have the good fortune, and I hope that fortune continues to be able to serve others in my own business. And again, there's highs and lows. And when the lows are low, it's like, okay, only belief, hope, and hard work. Get me to the other (laughs) side. And I do see it if you have that fortitude and, and that resilience. But I too support the small and medium-sized businesses. Now, people will tell me as an entrepreneur, don't pigeonhole yourself into that demographic. There are large companies that need my services, and I have worked for them as well, and I love them. But the small and medium-sized, they are the ones that are agile, that are very heart-centric, that have put their sweat into this. They care about the people. They want everybody to flourish. That's where I love to spend my energy because I want to see them successful. I want them to stay viable through transition, viability, and have the same opportunities as some of the larger companies.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And there's got to be a balance there from both sides of this equation. Folks, Uh, in in your position, certainly, uh, need to, to nourish businesses and, and help them empower their team members and their leadership just as we need to work to nourish entrepreneurs to open new businesses so that one day they can find themselves in the same position.
0: So I'm going to take you in another direction because in another chapter you your book, you talk about the education system leaves students <laughs> ill-prepared to deal with the inevitable challenges of entrepreneurship. Okay, so I was an engineer. I took an engineering job. Some people listening to this may have children. Some may be thinking of, I don't know, mentoring a nephew or something like that. I mean, what can we do now? I mean, the education system is a large machine, but what can we do either with the education system or conversations we have with people in the education system and going through it right now to consider entrepreneurship?
1: So there are about 5,000 colleges and universities in America, and among them, around 235 or so have entrepreneurship or small business as a major. That's 4%. So 96% of the colleges and universities in America do not offer entrepreneurship or small business as a major. So the message here is resoundingly clear. It is, we are preparing you to be an employee. We are teaching you to be an employee. And- it, it, when I, I'm sure that you experienced this in college just like I did. I was told to choose a major where there are high paying jobs. Choose something that is in the STEM field. And by the way, STEM jobs make up 13% of all jobs in America. So I'm not saying not to choose a STEM field, but I'm saying you're going to be competing with a lot of other people for those very few jobs that are available. So the the message is resoundingly clear is that our education department systems at every level is teaching you to be an employee. And I can give you some scientific facts to show this. So I'm sure you've heard of the George Lamb study. It's a very famous study where a psychologist discovered that 96 percent of all five year olds score at genius levels on NASA's creativity tests. And he followed those five year olds throughout their life. And by the time they were 30, 2% scored at genius levels on that test. Their creativity, which is one of the entrepreneurial instincts that I outline in the book, was hammered out of, absolutely drilled through to say, creativity is not how you're going to get a job. Creativity is not going to pay your rent. And the truth is, I think everyone can look around and say. It's kind of the opposite of that, right? The more innovative you are, the more you find opportunities and weaknesses in the market and think laterally rather than working down some linear linear path, the higher your pay is and your wealth ends up being. Those who are the wealthiest among us are the ones who were creative and found opportunities to innovate in the market. They're they're not the ones who followed this linear path that's laid out for us.
0: So We're only recording audio, but you know, we're Trey and I can see each other on video right now. I'm getting very emotional because I, I think I'm one of those statistics. My mother had me test; I was very, very high from an intellectual perspective, scoring as well as creativity. And we all thought I'd be an artist, a writer, a journalist, singer, actor, what have you. Very, very creative child. And society or choices that I made. I'm sure I could make other choices. I followed the STEM path. And each time that creative energy would pop up, society would kind of squash it. I wasn't embraced. Mm-hmm. I had my individual thought, no, this is what, what you were supposed to get or guess on this test. And you get a low score or a low writing score. It is a sad fact. So when I see creativity in my children, I have three of them. I try to balance, work hard. And you talk about hard work beats talent every time in your book. Hard work respect the system, respect yourself in doing the best that you can. But anytime they had a creative moment, I celebrated that because that's mm-hmm. them marching to their own beat.
1: Absolutely. So if you asked any CEO in America how important creativity and innovation was to their business model, I would venture to say that a hundred percent of them would say that it is very important to their business model. No one is going to shun creativity when asked. However, when you bring an innovative idea and a new idea, to leaders and CEOs in America, you more than likely will get shot down immediately because it is unverified. It is it has not been through the trial by fire. So in America, we we simultaneously say that we nurture and want and, and need creativity, while while shoving any new idea underneath a mattress somewhere and say come back once you've proven it. And here's what's really, really kind of bitter about this, Deb, is is then when the idea is proven to be amazing and one that is absolutely could be exploited in a variety of ways for business benefit, then we all decry it as plainly evidence. Then we say, oh, well, of course that's true. Look, I mean, this is obviously a great idea. But up until that point where it is proven, we we do not accept them. And it's a bitter irony to grow up in a, a creative kid in, in America. I was a creative kid. I was. In all of the the creative clubs in high school, I'm a left handed guy, and you know I'm, I'm not incredibly good at math. So I I will say that um you know I always felt like that that tendency for me to think laterally was something that um what I was almost punished for growing up as a kid.
0: Yeah, well I. Oh. We could go on and on but we only have 30 minutes for this interview, but you know I celebrate my children and their creativity and when I see it in others I try to elevate it again We're trying to do it one person at a time, but you know I can't wait for your book to come out. Uh, But I would love to know, let's just maybe bring it home. You've interfaced with so many people, you know, Chamber of Commerce, small entities trying to get the message across. Is there a story or an instance because of an interaction you've had with a person or a group of people, somebody had the courage to follow the creativity and maybe move into entrepreneurship?
1: You know, I have a a good friend who, she was a, a, a decorated veteran. She was a fantastic mom, all-around good person. She's one of those people that uh, you would, would would trust in every way, shape, and form. And she used to work for NASA. She worked as a project manager on the International Space Station. And she had a hobby that was her side gig, and, and it was a photography hobby. And I had the pleasure of working with her about 10 years ago, I guess, maybe 11 years ago or so now, and she has turned that hobby. She has subsequently left NASA, and she now has turned that hobby into a full-time business. And she has franchised that businesses and has a dozen or more franchisees that throughout the southeastern United States. And and she's really followed a passion, figured out how to monetize it slowly over a period of time, built up the revenue until it was enough to replace what she had, and then now she, I think she works 20 weeks out of the year, 25 weeks out of the year because of the business model that they have. And the rest of the time she spends with her kids and her family and, and other business ideas and nourishing her franchisees. And, and, and the the concept is called spoiled rotten photography, which I I'm Southern. So it's a fantastic name down here. So anyway, she's a phenomenal individual and, and really is, if you looked up, wholesome entrepreneur who deserves to be successful, you would see her face in the dictionary. So it's been an interesting story. And um, I was glad to be part of that. It was really an honor.
0: You know, it's a touching story. And and I too, I, I, I tell people a lot that I mentor others. Part of it is just to not accept the situation that you're in. And you do have control, power and the mindset to be able to pick and choose what you want. And I do remember mentoring somebody, I'm still very close to them, they thought they had the perfect ideal job. And but it was driving them crazy. One, they were good at what they did, but they would keep innovating and providing new ideas, and trying to find different people in the organization that would appreciate the Innovation versus being shot down, second guessed, and micromanaged. They worked really, really hard. And fortunately or unfortunately, they made the decision to finally leave that organization for which their creativity was no longer or never really appreciated. So it takes courage and bravery to leave the mediocrity of what society has dealt us to just say, I've had enough. I'm going to do things on my own terms. And even if it's to work for another company one that hopefully embraces creativity?
1: Certainly. So, you know, there are four entrepreneurial instincts in the book, creativity is, is the fourth, and they all move in, the, in a cycle, one begets the next. And and when you start understanding um, how they flow together and how to lean on one so that you can work on the next and, then, and really exploit the next so you can take that leap toward the third, then you start building momentum and, and what it's important to take away from this is that folks tend to think of employment and entrepreneurship as a black or white issue. I am an employee or I am an entrepreneur. Well, there have been many times when I was an employee, but I was still an entrepreneur. I just needed a paycheck for a little while until I had my next gig put together. And I have moved in and out of entrepreneurship my whole life, I have failed, I have lost tons of money, it has happened, and, and for, for you, and for any entrepreneur failure is inevitable and if you re- embrace that and learn from those failures along and along then that's you know you only have to be right i always hear mark cuban say this you only have to be right once right
0: yes
1: <laughs> and, and i love that saying because no when you're right once no one knows how many times you were wrong prior and and it's okay to move back and forth between the two so it, it's important to try not to think of you have to make this transition and there's no going back. And I think that's part of the fear factor for people is what if I try this and I lose everything? Well, that's ludicrous. I would never tell you to risk everything. I would tell you to start small in a way that's commensurate with your personal level tolerance and then build and, and verify the market and then tweak it and build some more. And to do this just like my friend did as Spold Rotten Photography, where she turned her hobby into a national franchise.
0: I love the work you're doing. I am such a fan. I can't wait for the book to come out so that you can share with others. People listening to this, I am hoping are inspired by your perspective and championing this cause. But if they also, the power of this community is to maybe refer you to people that can receive your message, your support and encouragement. So who are you looking to connect with that we can impact a million people?
1: I, I love working with chambers of commerce and economic development councils, and, and I like working with them very closely because it's usually those folks who really are optimists and glass half full folks. Their goals align with my goal of, of economic development and entrepreneurship. What I usually bring to the table for them is a, is a perspective that increases the balance. And, and helps them begin that yin and yang where they're nurturing startups as much as they are nurturing big business to move in and create you know, thousands of jobs simultaneously. And, um, you know, there are a lot of communities out there where there's a tremendous disparity. That my I have a business in Central Florida where there is such an incredible disparity. There's about half a dozen companies who employ 70% of the people in the community. And if you really think about a lot of folks say, gosh, I wish they would move to my community and bring that many jobs. And I would say, you know, it is an asset, but it is an enormous liability, an enormous liability for your people. So you've got to nurture those, those entrepreneurs in the process. And the best way that I can do it uh, to impact them at a, at a larger level rather than in individuals and hopefully get to a million is usually at the community and regional level. I do some lobbying in D.C. and Tallahassee because I live in Florida. But I find that the wheels turn so slowly in, the, in both capitals that I get a lot more done in the private sector, working with folks who actually want to exact change in their community and see the positive effects. So I, I choose those regional folks to work with. And I think that's the place where we make the largest impact.
0: All right. So thank you for that. And again, my community that's listening right now, I know that you listen because you're looking for insights and inspiration and Trey has been an amazing guest, but also I ask you, if you happen to know of a community that could leverage his services, his insight and the work that he's put into his book, Boss Brain, uh, definitely reach out to him. So Trey, if there were any last thoughts or ways that people can connect with you or any offers, what would that be before we bring this to a close?
1: so my name is spelled t-r-a williams which makes me exceedingly easy to stalk online so it's a strange spelling and you can find me at trawilliams.com and uh, there you can connect with me and through all social media but more importantly you have the opportunity to either pre-order or purchase my book directly Um, there are going to be some links forthcoming that can give you the opportunity to go through online curriculum that's based on the the entrepreneurial instincts of the book, and that should be out in the summer. So you have the opportunity to read the book in advance of that curriculum and then take this 30-day curriculum and hopefully make those changes within your own life at TreyWilliams.com.
0: Trey, I am grateful for you leading the charge because, again, it's not for everybody, but it could be for so many more people that are just looking to take control of their life, their career, and maybe entertain that creative itch or yearning that they have inside to do something different. So thank you for being a great guest and I wish you continued success.
1: Thank you, Deb. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. For more information about our consulting or coaching services, please visit my website at dropinceo.com or visit our Drop-In CEO Facebook group to continue the conversation. Now go out, lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.